all of our campuses, would you pray with me right now? Father, we come before you and uh, we want to specifically pray for every man, every woman, every child, every infant uh, in Israel, in Palestine, in the West Bank, and in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word in Psalms that says, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone uh, does marvelous deeds. And Lord, we thank you. We acknowledge your mercy and your grace, and we agree with your word to say that even to this day, you continue to do marvelous things. Lord, as you look down on us today, and you see terrible tragedies, not just taking place in the Middle East, but all over the world, all over the earth, we know that you weep and you mourn over the pain and suffering of men and women and children throughout this world that you created. But today, specifically, our prayers and our cries, uh, they go up to you, Lord, on behalf of the nation of Israel. Psalm 25 says, deliver Israel, O Lord, from their troubles. And so we agree with the word of God. We ask you to do that. We appeal to you, Lord, the savior of your people to bring peace where there is war, to bring healing where there is suffering, to bring justice in the midst of devastation. God, would you give power and strength to your people? Only you are able and willing to stop the atrocities of wars all around this world. Lord, the temptation to just say, oh, this is the end of all things, Lord. We place our hope in you even when we see parts of the world that seem to be just falling apart because you have triumphed at the cross of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would bring peace into this world, but especially in these days to Israel and to the surrounding nations. We declare with our lips that you are enthroned, Lord. You are the one that we praise. And so, Lord, we lift up our heavy hearts to you. Thank you for your presence in this place. Lord, thank you for every person listening to your word as we open it right now. Thank you that we can pray to you. Thank you that you listen to our prayers. Thank you, God, that you answer our prayers, that you're strong enough to do that, Lord. Thank you that you would bless us today and you would speak to us as we open up the Bible that actually becomes real and relevant in our lives. And I pray, Father, today that we would be like a sponge and we'd be ready to say, Lord, what is it you would speak to us? Actually, we are excited to hear from our Father. And I pray today that we would move and step towards just obeying you, Lord. So we're excited to hear from the Father and we pray this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, perhaps I have, um, but the Cullen family, my family, we have, a, we have a pet. We have a pet bird, and we kind of love him. Um, he's been with us for a few years. We're wondering how many years he's going to continue to be with us. He's a nice little bird. He, uh, he gives kisses, no joke, like he'll blow kisses. And uh, he can talk. He has a few little words and sentences that he can say. And he'll climb up on my shoulder. And he's chatting away in my ear. Sometimes he nibbles away at my ear. I don't really like that. That's just for Kelly to do. And, uh, and then he'll go on my hand. And he'll talk to me. And he'll just come real close to your face. He's kind of fascinated by it all. And this is our, our pet bird. His name is Chewy. Because Star Wars is cool. Yeah. <laughs> Star Wars is cool, and if you're here today and you don't know anything about Star Wars and you don't know who Chewie is, well, we'll still love you as a church, <laughs> but you're not welcome here next week, sorry. 
Two odd things about Chewy, very strange things about Chewy, is that more often than not, if I, I can get him out of his cage, no problem. But if I just open the door to his cage, generally speaking, he won't come out of his cage. He will not go up to the little door and he won't. And he can fly around the house, uh, but he won't come out. He won't spread his wings. He won't escape his little cage and come out and be with us unless I kind of take him out of the cage. And he doesn't want to do that. So I don't know why he's like that. The second odd thing about Chewy the bird is that his favorite thing on the planet Earth is his mirror. I'm not joking you. Like, he spends most of his life looking at himself in the mirror. He loves his mirror. And uh, we're not really too sure how smart he is. We're not sure if he thinks, is that another bird? Wow, another bird. Or does he know that it's him? So we're not sure on the IQ of, of Chewy the bird. Uh, but if it's him, boy, does he have an inflated sense of ego. I mean, he really, really has a strong sense of good self-esteem there going on for sure. He never seems to tire of admiring his own feathers. This is week number five of this series where we have been tapping into the most common places in our lives and simply asking the question, what does it look to invite Jesus into common areas of our lives? So often we think churchy stuff. We're like, yeah, that's sacred. So Sunday morning for sure, you know, we sing a few songs up in the Bible. This is a very sacred thing. But there's a disproportionate massive chunks of our lives that we look at and we're like, that's not sacred. That's just me getting on with life. That's just me doing what I got to do to pay the bills and get where I need to go and do the things I need to do. That's not sacred. And I think we're questioning that in this series right now. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at things like um, you know, people and, and, and manhood and womanhood and fatherhood and motherhood. We've looked at work, like this massive portion of our lives where we spend just thousands of hours of our lives. Is that sacred or is it just purely secular? Where does Christ fit into these kinds of things? This very day, what I want to bring you is probably the single most predominant commonplace of your life. And to put it in a word, it is you. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you are around you a whole lot of the time. And I know this for a fact. There are people who love to look in the mirror. And they'll look in the mirror to every opportunity. And sometimes that's unhealthy. And then there are people who loathe to look in the mirror. And they will actually move quickly past a mirror. I mean, quite literally. I don't want to see my reflection. I don't want to look at what I look like. But you're around you a whole lot. You cannot escape you. You can move to another country. It doesn't work. You'll still be with you. Look at this quote. The person I've had the most <coughs> difficulty with is me. And it's so unbelievably true. I've met many people in my life where I'm like, that's not enjoyable company. That person is arrogant. That person is... Uh, you know, kind of into themselves, they're full of pride, or that was just awkward, and you're like, I don't know if that was really a lot of fun hanging around with, but if I were to combine every difficult, challenging person I've ever met, they don't compare to the amount of challenges that I've given to myself. And I think the same is true of you also. I was on, uh, just looking on social media this week, and there was a, um, an individual that I'm loosely, loosely connected with, I don't know them terribly well, and they had had a bit of sad news. A grown adult, their, their mom had passed away. And they were putting this news on social media. And they wrote some words. And it was sort of semi-obituary, semi-these-are-my-feelings-about-my-mom. My and I wanted to read them to you because they're pretty poignant. It's, it's very brief. So these are the words of a grown child for their mom who's just died. And it said this. She gave it her all. 
I saw it every day. I read it in her journals. We gave our all to her as a family. It wasn't enough. She was everyone else's biggest cheerleader, but inside, she was tormented by depression, self-loathing, and a fear of rejection. It's like trying to explain the unexplainable. It's an odd thing. I've done many a funeral over the years, and that's not really the time when you point out a person's weaknesses or challenges. We tend to just say the nice things. But here this person says, and there's three words that stood out to me. She was tormented by depression. I wouldn't wish depression on my worst enemy. And then a sense of fear. And many of us are familiar with fear. She was fear of other people rejecting her in life. And and so she had to dance and and navigate that a certain way all, all the days of her life. And then the one that stood out to me the most, you just don't often hear this phrase, self-loathing. I think she had a hard time looking in the mirror. And I'm reading between the lines there. What does it look like to invite Christ to me, to you? What does that look like? This most common of all places, this person you cannot escape. What does it look like to be you in the light of Jesus Christ and in the context of what he's done for you? Jesus, the most dynamic voice that has ever spoken on the planet earth, the most powerful prophetic voice, wisdom personified, the power and the wisdom of God. What does he have to say about you? Well, he has stated something that I believe this proclamation still runs through to this day right here as you're listening to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 says this, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is, and this is the word that God speaks over you, freedom for your life. Now that's a great passage of scripture. I like it. You might like it as well. Okay, so the spirit of God is in me. That's wonderful. I believe in God. I trust God. I love God. I'm living for God. Spirit of God is in me. And the word of God says, there's freedom for me. But there's a question that very, very quickly bubbles up in my mind. Okay, if that's the case, God, then why is it that I seem to be able to observe so much unfreedom? That woman lived her life all the days of her life to her death, I don't know that you would say freedom is a word that describes her. Depression, fear of rejection, self-loathing, that probably described her life, sadly. Jesus taught, if you will step into this truth, if you will follow me in this regard, you will actually step into freedom. So why is there so much unfreedom? Because I see it too often, and I'm sure you do as well. People who love God, they claim to love God, they claim to trust God, but man, are they wound up. People who love God and trust God, but I know it's not a physical thing, but it's just like they're kind of wrapped up in a bunch of chains. Like something's not right there. It's like we just won't come out of the cage. And Christ invites us and opens up the door, but we refuse to to escape from this reality that so much of us are familiar with. And so I have to say something quite strong to you today. The sad reality is that for many Christians, they actually fear the responsibility of being free. I've got to say that again. We love God, we trust God, but we fear the responsibility of being free. Because that's a different life. And I'm actually used to being wound up tight. Do you know, chains wrapped around me, I've actually learned how to function like that. 
I've learned coping mechanisms and strategies and a way of being and a way of speaking and addressing things. I know how to live with that. In fact, that is what is most familiar to me. And so it is actually easier for me to remain in that way because change, man, that just seems really different. I'd rather let other people make decisions on my behalf. I'd rather live my life by some letter of the law than to be free. And we think, no, that can't be the case. Surely we don't really think like that. The book of Exodus, Jesus sets the nation of Israel free after 400 years of slavery. And if ever there was the overt, obvious, clear as day, supernatural activity of God, like right in front of their noses, it was right there. Plague after plague after plague, and he's setting them free. They're walking on dry land through the Red Sea that has been split in two. They're now in the desert, and they're following a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, if you and I got to see something as extraordinary like that, I think we would say, God, anything, anything, I can see you, you're right there. Just name it, I'll do it. I'll walk in through, I'll do, go anywhere for you, God. And yet five minutes into their freedom, what were they saying? Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. That's what they said. Why would you want to do that? Well, this is worse. We should really go back to Egypt. One day you'll stand before God, every one of you, myself included. And I guarantee you the conversation certainly will not be about how much money you have in your bank account or your retirement. It'll have nothing to do with whether or not you had the picture-perfect marriage or the picture-perfect family. God's not going to be interested in your degrees and your titles. He's, the conversation is about this most common and predominant thing in your life. You. Perhaps the ultimate accomplishment in your life is what Christ does in you. Because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's not technique. That's not craft. That's not religion. That's not check the boxes. That's not I got to be nicer than someone else. That's not I got to put on something on display to be something in front of people. So they think I'm more than I am. That's not some big leadership title name. It's none of those things. And so allow me to introduce to you a very specific word. It's a very soft word to be honest with you. But I think it's a necessary word. And it is the word tenderness. Tenderness. St. John's and Alma and Mount Pleasant and online. I'm talking to you today. Answer this question about you in the context of tenderness. Will you live your life in the wisdom of accepted tenderness from your God? Some of you are not doing that. Will you live your life, your one and only life, accepting yourself as loved with infinite tenderness? What is it that you think about you? How does, and just make a comparison here, how is the way that you think about you when you look in the mirror different to the way that the one who made you and knows you thinks about you and speaks about you? Is there a difference between those two opinions? Mark chapter 9, verse 36 says this, talking about Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And this is just, I want you to capture the tenderness of Christ. Don't miss the simplicity of it. This is the essential tenderness of Jesus. He looks out at a massive crowd of people and he says, I actually have compassion on them. I see them. They're scarred by sin and they need a shepherd. 
Jesus has this way of looking at the world, this way of even looking at a crowd and pulling you out of that crowd and it's revealing his deepest feelings towards you. And I get this, I, and, and, and you actually do too. Because we're, our temptation is perhaps to move in two different directions. Sometimes we look in the mirror and we think about ourselves and we think about like yesterday and the day before that and all of our past and we think, man, I'm actually riddled with regret. I actually, if, I, if I think about it long enough, I actually try not to think about it. But if I do, if I entertain the things that I've said and the people that I've hurt, like it doesn't take me long to want to pull the covers over my head and cringe at myself because there's plenty of guilt for me to dish out to me. Because I'm aware, I know, honest to me, I know what I've done. And I'm all too familiar with a fear of rejection or all kinds of fears. I'm all too familiar with pride. Truth be told, we're pretty stubborn sometimes. And we can dig our heels in even about ourselves. And we look at our own lives and we're like, man, I keep making the same mistakes, the same junk. I'm like a dog returning to its vomit. That's Proverbs. I'm on this merry-go-round of my own habitual sin. And I'm like, when do I ever get off the merry-go-round? Shouldn't I be further along by now? And our self-esteem rises and falls like a roller coaster and we look at ourselves and we're ready to puke. And then there's this other attitude sometimes where we finally get our act together and then <laughs> we're like, well, you know, I'm not so bad. I read a bit of Bible last week. Wow, that was a big deal. Prayed some prayers, I helped somebody, you know, and we get this thing in our head and, and then we... We like, it's like we're, we're safeguarding our own opinion about ourselves. We're like, can I actually feel a sense of security in who I am? And I, I'm not sure if I can. The truth comes even when we get to that point where we feel secure in ourselves. We hold that kind of opinion with deep suspicion. Either way, in, in any of those scenarios, I'll tell you what's happening. Your voice is louder than Jesus' voice. Either way. Your opinion is more important to you than the opinion of Christ. I cannot accept Jesus' feelings that they would be different to mine, which simply means that I will not allow Jesus to be Jesus in my life. I saw a study recently, and it was a long-term study for a thousand mothers as they gave birth to their children and raised their children. And they were making observations. And there were small deviations, but for the large, large percentage of the mothers, there was an immediate sense of affection towards their, their children that came into the world. And mothers who would make themselves available and who were very doting towards their children. And you saw physical touch and eye contact and smiles and development over the years and all that would go into the bonding of a mother and a child. And then they looked at these children who became adults many years later in terms of the difference, in terms of self-confidence and self-esteem. And the bottom line of the study, long-term study, was the, the summary and conclusion of it all was simply this, that you cannot love a baby too much. You cannot love a baby too much. There's no such thing. Child of God, you cannot be on the receiving end of too much love from your father. And yet, some of us battle with it. Some of us go, yeah, I, I get it. That's a bit cliche, Jesus loves you. Yeah, you know, I, I gotta get on with stuff. But the point of this is it actually matters. Why? Because it's your life. 
I mean, it's your, I mean, it really is the Monday, Tuesday of your life. Christ's view of you matters in the most real, common, practical, pragmatic, massive, concrete way because it will become your life and it will become your way of life, how you actually think about yourself. Author Manning puts it like this. He says, the way of tenderness affects our manner of being in the world more rather than our manner of doing in the world, like literally the, the living and breathing part of your normal day. Jesus says this big macro statement. He says, all of the law, all of the prophets, so that's a massive statement, hinge on two things. So this is very important. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And number two, church, I'm going to ask you to finish this sentence for me. Love your neighbor as... One more time, a little bit louder. No, love your neighbor as? So how do you love yourself? Because in here we seem to have this, this truth from Jesus Christ that says somehow the quality and the quantity of your love for yourself is a reflection of your love for God and other people. So how do you love yourself? And it's like we have this idea in our head it's, and it's a lie. Well, I don't have to do that. No, you do. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you, for sure you don't have to. But if you follow Jesus, sorry, you do have to love yourself. I don't, well, I have to like myself, right? Sorry, you do. Well, I don't have to accept myself because, man, I got some stuff, man. If you knew what I've done, you probably wouldn't even want to have a conversation with me. Sorry, you do. I, I don't actually care what you've done. Because in a biblical worldview, as we examine our lives in the light of the person of the Holy Spirit, perhaps the supreme achievement of the Holy Spirit is to move a person from a place of self-rejection to self-acceptance in the context of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's not self-help books. That's not like fix my ego with three quick steps. That's not fake ego boosting. That's founded on the finished work of Christ. That you're actually valuable. That you are the pearl of great price. And that will actually lead you to a gentleness towards yourself. As you step into the presence of God. And an ability and a capacity to love other people. And to love God. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And there out on the street. Arrives this setup. And it wasn't by Jesus' doing. And out into the middle of the street walks the self-appointed judge and jury. It is the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. John chapter 8 verse 3 says this. They put her in front of the crowd. Referring to this woman. She's on display. The very thing that she would like to conceal at all costs is now public. Stigma. Shame. Guilt. Judgment, and they're delighted with it. This woman has been caught in adultery. Conveniently, the dude is nowhere to be found. And the inference is that they've literally dragged her out of a bed. And there she is, lying on the ground in an honor-shame culture that really is unfamiliar to you and I. And she is exposed in front of everybody. Institutional religion want their pound of flesh, and they're going to get it from her. And they set up Jesus. Verse 5 says this, Jesus, the law of Moses says we're to stone her. What do you say? So this is a, this is a trap. 
I want you to see the tenderness of Christ. Jesus never even asked this adulterous woman, and she was that. He never asked her if she was sorry. He is feeling her abject shame. He is observing a merciless interrogation. A public jury in this honor-shame culture, openly exposed. And Jesus forgives her even before she asks for forgiveness. Jesus visits a town called Nain. And the tenderness of Jesus, like it's so easy to see. Culturally, there's this widow. She's going to a funeral. She's already a widow. And a widow in ancient Middle East, like they run the risk of destitution. Unless a widow had sons. Because the sons could look after her. She's got no husband anymore. But in this verse, it's the funeral for her one and only son. So it's not just grief, but her future. It's going to be grief followed by hopelessness. Luke 7 verse 11, soon afterwards Jesus went to the town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Like they're carrying out the, the body of her son they're going to a gravesite, And that verse right there, I actually looked up different versions of it, four different versions. And he's looking into the face of a, a mother's grief-stricken face. And he says, there's one version says he feels sorry for her. Another one, he says he's moved with pity. Another one says he has compassion on her. And another one says his heart goes out to her. Church, you get the point. Jesus is like he's taking her face in his hands. And he's whispering to her, like... I, I know. This looks like hopelessness. I know. And wiping the tears from her face with his thumbs and just saying, don't cry, don't cry. It's a very tender moment. Jesus, quite literally in that moment, is the, is the human face of God. And in that moment and in every moment, you and I are being watched and seen with the exact same tender gaze. One of my favorite authors, I've quoted him earlier, is a fellow called Manning. And he, he, to say he was haunted by his past is an understatement. He, he had made all the mistakes. And he admits in his own writing that he was haunted and he was plagued because he was an outright womanizer. He, he would just abusively go through women. He was a hypocrite. He was riddled with pride. He was addicted to people's approval. And he, in his writings, he even shows how he did it, and it was ugly stuff. And he was addicted big time to alcohol. And he comes to Christ, and it transforms his life. And then he starts writing, and of course, the Christian community start reading, and pretty influential writer. And then what happened is some number of years later, he actually relapsed, and his relapse into alcoholism was so bad that his whole life, I mean, it just fell asunder, and he ended up homeless, living on the streets for actually several years. And it probably, it, maybe it was because of his devotion to Christ, because he loved God and he was living for God, that, man, he was just beating himself up. And it was this sense of like, how could I have done this? Like Jesus opened the cage and I got out of the cage and I got to spread my wings and I got free of alcoholism and I've gone back to it. I can't believe I've gone back to it and all that's God done for me. And I should have known better and I do know better. And, and yet here I am. And he literally wakes up morning and he, in one morning on a, on, a, on a porch of a house and he has soiled himself and his puked on himself and he's looking at this moment he's like what has become of me and he's just plagued by he's beating himself up in this moment 
Christian community finds out? Do you think they helped? No. There's no mercy. There was no mercy. It was more judgment. It was like the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law again. Like, why did you do that? You should have known better. We, we were, thank you for your ministry that we, we were exposed to, but obviously it means nothing and you're probably not even a Christian. And of course, that didn't help him at all. It made him worse. And he tells this story in his writing. Somehow, the Lord put the pieces back together and he was sober and he's actually has a home and has a woman that he loves and he tells a story and it is just a ridiculously precious story. He's in the kitchen. It's just the simplest thing with this woman that he loves. This man whose heart has now been, I mean, it's like the Holy Spirit just transformed him. Because this person who was so convicted, so in his mind and in his heart, he's full of scars. I mean, he's just damaged so many people, including himself. He's full of sin, full of shame. But because of Jesus Christ now, all of that plaguing and haunting, it now just begins to pale in comparison to the furious, infinite love of Jesus Christ over his life. It no longer is able to chain him up at all. And he's, he's even looking at his life, not just his past, but he's like, even my present. He's like, I'm still pretty lackluster. I still have hidden motives. He's like, I could still go back to drink. I know that's in me. I could still go back to pride. But despite all of that, it's like he's saying, God's voice is thundering louder than my own voice that would condemn myself. The foul sounds of the lies that I speak to myself every time I look in the mirror. He's like, God's voice is louder. And he's standing in this kitchen. And he's, a, he's also like, a, he's a bit of a compass, uh, compulsive kind of clean freak of a guy and he's standing in this kitchen and this woman that he loves is angry with him and it's a small little thing but she's angry and this is what he writes he says I, I here I am in the kitchen one day she looks at me and she says you're such a fuss bucket I the irritation in her voice was palpable she was angry with me he writes what has provoked this unseemly outburst I'm simply scrubbing six cereal bowls and washing them that have never been used before. Some new bowls. And boy, do I clean them. I scrub them with vigor because, as my mother used to say, if you're going to do something, do it right. She can't stand that he's doing this. It's petty little marriage stuff. Immediately in my mind, he writes, I become aware of two options. Number one, I conjure up a slashing retort, a verbal retort that I know will cut her fragile psyche to ribbons. He thinks to himself, well, if, as the great minds say, cleanliness is next to godliness, your shallow, stupid, insignificant soul will slide all the way to hell. That ought to do nicely, he says to himself. But he remains quiet. Second option. What is wrong with me? Why am I cleaning clean bowls? These bowls are new. I'm such an obsessive compulsive freak. 
when it comes to cleanliness. I've always been this way. I'm such a neurotic. I, I must drive everybody up the wall. She's probably sick and tired of me. Why would she even want to be around me? I can't believe she can stand to be in my company. I am wretched. She's been far too patient with me all this long. I'm disgusting. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the tender love of Jesus Christ. And this is what he does. He writes, I lock my soapy fingers behind my back and I lean forward to her and I kiss her and I take my head and I place it on her shoulder and there it remains as I rest on her. What has happened to this man? He's saying no to a habit of a lifetime of hating himself and self-loathing because he has received and is leaning into and is depending upon the tenderness of Christ towards him, as broken as he still is, as scarred and marred as he still is. And now he is actually becoming an instrument of the tenderness of Jesus Christ to someone else. And she is paralyzed and she is perplexed because she can no longer accuse him. She is no longer angry. She has put away her words. She has put away her weapons. She has put aside her anger. For she has now been kissed with the affection of Jesus Christ. And Christ himself is resting his head upon her shoulder. This is how he puts it. The heart enveloped in the tenderness of God. Passes that tenderness around indiscriminately. To those who are both worthy and unworthy. You see, it's hard to love your neighbor as yourself when you disagree with Christ's love for you. This day, would you invite Christ into that which is most common and allow the Holy Spirit this opportunity to show you, unworthy you, unworthy me, his tender, his tender affection and his bond his touch and his care and his kindness and his love. The prophet Hosea speaks of the way a young man would allure a young lady towards love. Chapter 2, verse 16, I'm going to lure her and lead her out into the desert. There I will speak to her heart. Another version says, I'm going to allure her into the desert and there I will speak tenderly to her. Like church, for real. Will you allow yourself to be loved by God. Some of you have said no to that for years. Or maybe in small degrees. Listen to this question. Do I wholeheartedly believe that God actually likes me? Likes me. Not even loves me. God is love. Do I wholeheartedly believe that God likes me? Do I trust that God likes me? Not after I clean myself up. Not after I've eliminated every trace of sin and selfishness and dishonesty and degraded love. Not after I have developed all my disciplines of prayer. Not after I've spent 10 years on the mission field in Calcutta. But in this moment. Not after I've memorized the Bible. But right here, right now, with my faults and my weaknesses and your problems and your challenges. Can you answer without hesitation? I happen to know that he's particularly fond of me. What a way to live your life. It's a life-changing truth. 
Jesus is being baptized by John. And the heavens open and the spirit descends on him like a dove. And the voice of the father booms. This is my son. My beloved on whom my favor rests. In the salvation plan of God, the father is confirming this core identity over his son, beloved. And there we see present father, son, and Holy Spirit, the whole trinity. Paul, what is he? He's the Christian murderer. That's what he is. And now he's imprisoned and he knows that he has executed followers of the way and he should be crippled by his past. He should be useless. He should be riddled with self-loathing. And yet we see he calls himself the chief of sinners. He's not oblivious to the damage and the hurt that he has caused. And yet all of it seems to melt away as he pens 14 of the epistles in the New Testament. And he writes in the book of Romans, there's nothing, nothing, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. Not even my past. Whether your life has been easy, whether your life has been hard, whether you grew up with affection and bonding and care and physical touch, whether it was idyllic or whether it was abusive, the challenge still remains. Do you accept yourself as one utterly loved by God? Change your life in the most common place of all, you. All campuses, we're going to respond in worship right now. And I want you to sing these words and it may require faith from you. You can sing these words as words of worship, but I would encourage you to sing these words as words of faith. Would you stand? Let's worship the King.